Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Classes of Mail. My name is Alan Gigax, and this week we are going to be reading from the JCAM. We're going to go over Articles 5 and 6. So just like in the other readings, I'm going to read the entire thing word for word, and where the um, language is, bo- is inside of a box because it's from the actual contract, I'm going to be reading that in an accent so that you can differentiate it from the commentary. The commentary I will read in my normal voice, and what's in the box I'll read with an accent. For the first few episodes, I was doing the only real accent I know at least halfway how to do, which is a Southern Gentleman. But this week, I'm going to try something a little bit different, change it up, keep it interesting, and I am going to take a page out of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History and use his gruff voice that he uses for his quotes. So we'll try that one, see if it's any fun. Uh, hopefully it is at least intelligible and you can tell what I'm saying, but I guess we're going to find out shortly. So let me make sure. Yep. We are good on recording. Damn. I've already wasted a minute with all this stuff. Who even cares? Let's just get to article five and get started. Here we go. Article five prohibition of unilateral action. By the way, if I didn't already say we're reading articles five and six today. The employer will not take any actions affecting wages, hours, and other terms and conditions of employment as defined in Section 8D of the National Labor Relations Act, which violate the terms of this agreement or are otherwise inconsistent with its obligations under law. The preceding article, Article 5, shall apply to city carrier assistant employees. Well, that's a little scratchy on my voice. All right, moving on. Prohibition on Unilateral Changes. Article 5 prohibits management from taking any unilateral action inconsistent with the terms of the existing agreement or with its obligations under law. Section 8D of the National Labor Relations Act prohibits an employer from making unilateral changes in wages, hours, or working conditions during the term of a collective bargaining agreement. In such and such arbitration, National Arbitrator Bernstein wrote concerning Article 5, The only purpose the article can serve is to incorporate all the services' obligations under law into into the agreement, so as to give the services' legal obligations the additional status of contractual obligations as well. This incorporation has significance primarily in terms of enforcement mechanisms. It enables the signatory unions to utilize the contractual vehicle of arbitration to enforce all of the services' legal obligations. Moreover, the specific reference to the National Labor Relations Act is persuasive evidence that the parties were especially interested in utilizing the grievance and arbitration procedure spelled out in Article 15 to enforce the service's NLRB commitments. Not all unilateral actions are prohibited by the language in Article Article 5, only those affecting wages, hours, or working conditions as defined in Section 8D of the National Labor Relations Act. Additionally, certain management decisions concerning the operation of the business are specifically reserved in Article 3, unless otherwise restricted by a specific contractual provision. Past Practice The following explanation represents the National Party's general agreement on the subject of past practice. The explanation is not exhaustive and is intended to provide the local party's general guidance on the subject. The local parties must ensure that the facts surrounding a dispute in which past practice plays a part are surfaced and thoroughly developed so as an informed decision can be made. Article 5 may also limit the employer's ability to take a unilateral action where a valid past practice exists. 
While most labor disputes can be resolved by application of the written language of the agreement, it has long been recognized that the resolution of some disputes requires the examination of the past practice of the parties. Defining Past Practice In a paper given to the National Academy of Arbitrators, Arbitrator Mittenthal described the elements required to establish a valid past practice. First, there should be clarity and consistency. A course of conduct which is vague and ambiguous or which has been contradicted as often as it has been followed can hardly qualify as a practice. But where those in the plant invariably respond the same way to a particular set of conditions, their conduct may very well ripen into a practice. Second, there should be longevity and repetition. A period of time has to elapse during which a consistent pattern of behavior emerges. Hence, one or two isolated incidents of a certain conduct do not ordinarily establish a practice. Just how frequently, just how frequently and over how long a period something must be done before it can be characterized as a practice is a matter of good judgment for which no formula can be devised. Third, there should be acceptability. The employees and supervisors alike must have knowledge of the particular conduct and must regard it as the correct and customary means of handling a situation. Such acceptability may frequently be implied from long acquiescence in a known course of conduct. Where this acquiescence does not exist, that is, where employers constantly protest a particular course of action through complaints and grievances, it is doubtful that any practice will be created. One must consider, too, the underlying circumstance which gives give a practice its true dimensions. A practice is no broader than the circumstances out of which it has arisen, although its scope can always be enlarged in the day-to-day -day administration of the agreement. No meaningful description of a practice can be made without mention of these circumstances. For instance, a work assignment practice which develops on the afternoon and midnight shifts and which is responsive to the peculiar needs for night work cannot be automatically extended to the day shift. The point is that every practice must be carefully related to its origin and purpose. Finally, the significance to be attributed to a practice may possibly be affected by whether or not it is supported by mutuality. Some practices are the product, either in their inception or in their application, of a joint understanding. Others develop from choices made by the employer in the exercise of its managerial discretion without any intention of a future commitment. Function of, functions of past practice In the same paper, Arbitrator Mittenthal notes that there are three distinct functions of past practice. To implement contract language Contract language may not be sufficiently specific to resolve all issues that arise. In such cases, the past practice of the parties provides evidence of how the provision at issue should be applied. For example, Article 15, Section 2, Step 3 of the 1978 National Agreement and successor agreements through the 2000 National Agreement required the parties to hold Step 3 meetings. The contract language, however, did not specify where the meetings were to be held. Arbitrator Mittenthal held that in the absence of any specific controlling contract language, the Postal Service did not violate the national agreement by insisting that Step 3 meetings be held at locations consistent with past practice. And there's a citation here. To clarify ambiguous language, past practice is used to assess the intent of the parties when the contract language is ambiguous. That is, when a contract provision could plausibly be interpreted in one of several different ways. 
A practice is used in such circumstances because it is an indicator of how the parties have mutually interpreted and applied the ambiguous language. For example, in a dispute concerning the meaning, uh, meaning of an LMOU provision, evidence showing how the provision has been applied in the past provides insight into how the parties interpreted the language. If a clear past practice has developed, it is generally found that the past practice has established the meaning of the disputed provision. To implement separate conditions of employment. Past practice can establish a separate enforceable condition of employment concerning issues where the contract is silent. This is referred to by a variety of terms, but the one most frequently used is the silent contract. For example, a past practice of providing the local union with a file cabinet may become a binding past practice, even though there, is no, there are no contract or LMAU provisions concerning the issue. Changing past practices. The manner by which a past practice can be changed depends on its purpose and how it arose. Past practices that implement or clarify existing contract language are treated differently than those concerning the silent contract. Changing past practices that implement or clarify contract language. If a binding past practice clarifies or implements a contract provision, it becomes, in effect, an unwritten part of that provision. Generally, it can only be changed by changing the underlying contract language or through bargaining. Changing past practices that implement separate conditions of employment. If the Postal Service seeks to change or terminate a binding past practice implementing conditions of employment concerning areas where the contract is silent, Article 5 prohibits it from doing so unilaterally without providing the union appropriate notice. Prior to making such a change unilaterally, the Postal Service must provide notice to the union and engage in good faith bargaining over the impact on the bargaining unit. If the parties are unable to agree, the union may grieve the change. Management changes in such silent contracts are generally not considered violations if 1. The company changes owners or bargaining unit. 2. The nature of the business changes. or 3. The practice is no longer efficient or economical. The first of these has rarely arisen in Postal Service cases involving its numerous bargaining units. A change in local union leadership or the arrival of a new postmaster or supervisor is not, in itself, sufficient justification to change or terminate a binding past practice, as noted in the previous paragraph. And that is the end of Article 5. All right, we shall move on to Article 6. No layoffs or reduction in force. Here we go. 1. Each employee who is employed in the regular workforce as of the date of the award of arbitrator James H. Healy, September 15, 1978, shall be protected henceforth against any involuntarily, involuntary layoff or force reduction. All right, this accent is not going to work for me. It is hurting my throat. So, back to the Southern gentleman. Let me just start over for, for clarity. We're doing Article 6, and here we go with the contract language. 1. Each employee who was employed in the regular workforce as of the date of the award of arbitrator James A. J. Healy, September 15, 1978, shall be protected henceforth against any involuntary layoff or force reduction. It is the intent of this provision to provide security to each such employee during his or her work lifetime. Members of the regular workforce, as defined in Article 7 of the agreement, include full-time regulars, 
part-time employees assigned to regular schedules, and part-time employees assigned to flexible schedules. 2. Employees who become members of the regular workforce after the date of this award, September 15, 1978, shall be provided with the same protection afforded under 1 above on completion of 6 years of continuous service and having worked in at least 20 pay periods during each of the 6 years. 3. With respect to employees hired into the regular workforce after the date of this award and who have not acquired the protection provided under 2 above, the employer shall have the right to effect layoffs for lack of work or for other legitimate reasons. This right may be exercised in lieu of reassigning employees under the provisions of Article 12, except as such right may be modified by agreement. Should the exercise of the employer's right to lay off employees require the application of the provisions of Chapter 35 of Title V, United States Code, employees covered by that chapter with less than three years of continuous civilian federal service will be treated as career conditional employees. The employer's right, as established in this section, shall be effective July 20, 1979. The following terms as to the employees and employers rights and rules and proceed and the, the following terms as to the employees and employers rights and the rules and procedures to be followed in the implementation of article 6 are a part of the September 15, 1978 final resolution and shall be final and binding upon the parties. A coverage 1 Employees protected against any involuntary layoff or force reduction. Those employees who occupy full-time, part-time, those employees who occupy full-time, part-time regular, or part-time flexible positions in the regular workforce, as defined in Article 7, on September 15, 1978, are protected against layoff and reduction in force during any period of employment in the regular workforce with the United States Postal Service or successor organization in his or her lifetime. Such employees are referred to as protected employees. Other employees achieve protected status under the provisions of A.3 below. 2. And this is 6.A.2. 2. Employees subject to involuntary layoff or force reduction. Except as provided in A.1 and A.3, all employees who enter the regular workforce, whether by hire, transfer, demotion, reassignment, reinstatement, and reemployment on or after September 16, 1978, are subject to layoff or force reduction and are referred to as non protected employees. 6.A.3 3. Non protected employees achieving protected status. A. A non-protected employee achieves protected status upon completion of six years of continuous service in the regular workforce. The service requirement is computed from the first day of the pay period in which the employee enters the regular workforce. To receive credit for the year, the employee must work at least one hour or receive a call-in guarantee in lieu of work in at least 20 of the 26 pay periods during the anniversary year. Absence from actual duty for any of the following reasons will be considered as work solely for the purposes of this requirement. 1. 
to the extent required by law, court leave, time spent in military service covered by Chapter 43 of Title 38, or time spent on continuation of pay, leave without pay, or on OWCP roles because of compensable injury on duty. 2. Time spent on paid annual leave or sick leave as provided for in Article 10 of the agreement. 3. Leave without pay for performing union business as provided for in Article 24 of the agreement. All other unpaid leave and periods of suspension or time spent in layoff or RIF status will not be considered work. Failure to meet the 20 pay period requirement in any given anniversary year means the employee must begin a new six-year continuous service period to achieve protected status. Temporary details outside of the regular work... Oh, B. B. Temporary details outside of the regular workforce in which the employee's position of record remains in the regular workforce count toward fulfilling the 20 pay periods of work work requirement per year. C. If a non-protected employee leaves the regular workforce for a position outside the Postal Service and remains there more than 30 calendar days, upon return the employee begins a new service period for purposes of attaining six years continuous service. D. If a non-protected employee leaves the regular workforce and returns within two years from a position within the Postal Service, the employee will receive credit for previously completed full anniversary years for purposes of attaining the six years continuous service. 6.B.1 Preconditions for Implementation of Layoff and Reduction in Force 1. The affected union shall be notified at the regional level no less than 90 days in advance of any layoff or reduction in force that an excess of employees exists or will exist at an installation and that a layoff and reduction in force may be necessary. The employer will explain to the union the basis for its conclusion that legitimate business reasons require the excessing and possible separation of employees. 6.B.2 2. No employee shall be reassigned under this article or laid off or reduced in force unless and until that employee has been notified at least 60 days in advance that he or she may be affected by one or the other of these actions. 6.B.3 3. The maximum number of excess employees within an installation shall be determined by seniority unit within each category of employees. Full-time, part-time regular, part-time flexible. This number determined by the employer will be given to the union at the time of the 90-day notice. 6.B.4 4. Before implementation of reassignment under this article or, if necessary, layoff and reduction in force of excess employees within the installation, the employer will, to the fullest extent possible, separate all casuals within the craft and minimize the amount of overtime work and part-time flexible hours in the positions or group of positions covered by the seniority unit as defined in this agreement or as agreed to by the parties. In addition, the employer shall solicit volunteers from among employees in the same craft within the same installation to terminate their employment with the employer. Employees who elect to terminate their employment will receive a lump sum severance payment 
in the amount provided by Pot 435 of the Employee and Labor Relations Manual, will receive benefit coverage to the extent provided by such manual, and, if eligible, will be given the early retirement benefits provided by Section 8336D2 of Title V, United States Code, and regulations implementing that statute. 6.B.5 No less than 20 days prior to effecting a layoff, the employee will post a list of all vacancies in other seniority units and crafts at the same or lower level which exist within the installation and within the commuting area of the losing installation. Employees in an affected seniority unit may, within 10 days after the posting, request reassignment under this article to a posted vacancy. Qualified employees will be assigned to such vacancies on the basis of seniority. If a senior, non-preference eligible employee within the seniority unit indicates no interest in available reassignment, then such employee becomes exposed to layoff. A preference eligible employee within a seniority unit shall be required to accept such a reassignment to a vacancy in the same level at the installation or, if none exists at the installation, to a vacancy in the same level at an installation within the commuting area of the losing installation. If the reassignment is to a different craft, the employee's seniority, the employee's seniority in the new craft shall be established in accordance with the applicable seniority provisions of the new craft. C. Layoff and Reduction in Force 6.C.1 1. Definition. The term layoff, as used herein, refers to the separation of non-protected, non-preference eligible employees in the regular workforce because of lack of work or other legitimate non-disciplinary reasons. The term reduction in force, as used herein, refers to the separation or reduction in the grade of a non-protected veterans preference eligible. The term... Reduction in force, as used herein, refers to the separation or reduction in the grade of a non-protected veteran's preference eligible in the regular workforce because of lack of work or other legitimate non-disciplinary reasons. Hmm. 6.C.2 2. Order of layoff if an excess of employees exists at an installation after satisfaction of the preconditions set forth in B above, the employer may lay off employees within their respective seniority units as defined in this agreement. 6.C.3 3. Seniority units for purposes of layoff. Seniority units within the categories of full-time regular, part-time regular, and part-time flexible will consist of all non-protected persons at a given level within an established craft and an installation unless the parties agree otherwise. It is the intent to provide the broadest possible unit consistent with the equities of senior non-protected employees and with the efficient operation of the installation. 6.C.4 4. Union Representation Chief stewards and union stewards whose responsibilities bear a direct relationship to the effective and efficient representation of a bargaining unit employee shall be placed at the top of the seniority unit roster in the order of their relative craft seniority for purposes of layoff, reduction in force, and recall. 6.C.5 5. 
reduction in force. If an excess of employees exists in an installation after satisfaction of the preconditions set forth in B above and after the layoff procedure has been applied, the employer may implement a reduction in force as defined above. Such reduction will be conducted in accordance with statutory and regulatory requirements that prevail at the time the force reduction is effected. Should applicable law and regulations require that other non-protected, non-preference eligible employees from other seniority units be laid off prior to reduction in force, such employees will be laid off in inverse order of their craft seniority in the seniority unit. In determining competitive levels and competitive areas applicable in a force reduction, the employer will submit its proposal to the union at least 30 days prior to the reduction. The union will be afforded a full opportunity to make suggested revisions in the proposal. However, the employer, having the primary responsibility for compliance with the statute and regulations, reserves the right to make the final decision with respect to competitive label levels and competitive areas. In making its decision with respect to competitive levels and competitive areas, the employer shall give no greater retention security to preference eligibles than to non-preference eligibles except as may be required by law. 6.D.1 D. Recall Rights 1. Employees who are laid off or reduced in force shall be placed on recall lists within the seniority units and shall be entitled to remain on such lists for two years. Such employees shall keep the employer informed of their current address. Employees on the list shall be notified in order of craft seniority within the seniority unit of all vacant assignments in the same category and level from which they were laid off or reduced in force. Preference eligibles will be accorded no recall rights greater than non-preference eligibles except as required by law. Notice of vacant assignment shall be given by certified mail, return receipt requested, and a copy of such notice shall be furnished to the local union president. An employee so notified must acknowledge receipt of the notice and advise the employer of his or her intentions within five days after receipt of the notice. If the employee accepts the position offered, he or she must report for work within two weeks after receipt of notice. If the employee fails to reply to the notice within five days after the notice is received or delivery cannot be accomplished, the employer shall offer the vacancy to the next employee on the list. If an employee declines the offer of a vacant assignment in his or her seniority unit or does not have a satisfactory reason for failure to reply to a notice, the employee shall be removed from the recall list. 6.D.2 2. An employee reassigned from a losing installation pursuant to B.5 above and who has retreat rights shall be entitled under this article to exercise those retreat rights before a vacancy is offered to an employee on the recall list who is junior to the reassigned employee in craft seniority. 6.E. E. Protective benefits. 1. Severance pay. Employees who are separated because of a layoff or reduction in force shall be entitled to severance pay in accordance with Part 435 of the Employee and Labor Relations Manual. 2. Health and Life Insurance Coverage 
employees who are separated because of a layoff or reduction in force shall be entitled to the health insurance and life insurance coverage and to the conversion rights provided for in the Employee and Labor Relations Manual. 6.F F. Union Representation Rights 1. The interpretation and and application of the provisions of this award shall be grievable under Article 15. Any such grievance may be introduced at Step B and shall be subject to priority arbitration. 2. The employer shall provide to the affected union a quarterly report on all reassignments, layoffs, and reductions in force made under this article. 3. Preference eligibles are not deprived of whatever rights of appeal such employees may have under applicable laws and regulations. If the employee appeals under the Veterans Preference Act, however, the time limits for appeal to arbitration and the normal contractual arbitration scheduling procedures are not to be delayed as a consequence of that appeal. If there is an MSPB appeal pending as of the date of If there is an MSPB appeal pending as of the date the arbitration is scheduled by the parties, the grievant waives access to the grievance arbitration procedure beyond step B. 6.G. G. Intent. The employer shall not lay off, reduce in force, or take any other action against a non-protected employee solely to prevent the attainment of that employee of protection status. Additional low layoffs or reduction in force provisions regarding city carrier assistant employees are found in Appendix B. Whew. Background. Article 6 was created in its current form by Arbitrator Healy's Interest Arbitration Awards that decided the terms of the 1978-1981 to National Agreement. An initial award of September 14, 1978 established the basic right of Postal Service Management to lay off certain employees under certain specific conditions. The second award, issued February 26, 1979, set forth the details of the current Article 6. Lifetime Protection for Employees on Rolls in 1978 Article 6 provides lifetime protection against layoffs for employees who were in the regular workforce on September 15, 1978. Employees with lifetime protection against layoff are referred to as protected employees. Lifetime protection is not lost by those employees on the rolls on September 15, 1978, who later leave the Postal Service and then are rehired after any break in service or who transfer from one office to another. Non-protected employees are defined as those who enter the regular workforce, whether by hire, transfer, demotion, reassignment, reinstatement, or reemployment on or after September 16, 1978. They are subject to layoff or reduction in force until they achieve protected status. Layoff protection after six years. Non-protected employees achieve protected status upon completion of six years of continuous service in the regular workforce, which includes all part-time flexible, full-time flexible, full-time regular, and part-time regular carriers. To receive credit, such employees must work at least one hour or receive a call-in guarantee, Article 8.8, in lieu of work in at least 20 of the 26 pay periods during each of the six consecutive anniversary years. The anniversary year begins on the first day of the pay period in which the employee enters the regular workforce. Details of Service Requirement 
For the purpose of the six-year requirement, absence from work for any of the following reasons is considered to be work. 1. To the extent required by law. A. Court leave. B. Certain time spent in military service covered Chapter 43 of Title 38. Or C. Time spent on continuation of pay, leave without pay, or on the OWCP rolls because of compensable injury on duty. Article 6.8.3 A. 1. 2. Time spent on paid annual or sick leave. Article 6.8.3 A. 2. 3. Time spent on leave without pay for performing union business as provided for in Article 24 of the agreement. Article 6.8.3 A. 3. And 4. Temporary details outside the regular workforce in which the employee's position of record remains in the regular workforce. Article 6.8.3 B. The parties do not currently agree upon the extent to which time spent on other leave without pay covered by the Family Medical Leave Act is considered work for the purpose of the six-year requirement. The period of continuous service is broken when a non-protected employee leaves the regular workforce for a position outside the postal service and fails to return within 30 calendar days, or when such an employee leaves the regular workforce for a position within the postal service and fails to return within two years. Article 6.8.3 C and D. Layoff and reduction in force. Article 6 defines layoff as the separation of non-protected, non-preference eligible employees in the regular workforce because of lack of work or other legitimate, non-disciplinary reasons. Reduction in force refers to the separation or reduction in the grade of a non-protected veteran's preference eligible in the regular workforce because of lack of work or other legitimate, non-disciplinary reasons. See preference eligible carriers. Procedural protections. Article 6 provides certain procedural protections. For instance, management may not implement a layoff or a reduction in force without at least 90 days notification to the union, 60 days notification of layoff to the affected employee, and posting of any available vacancies no less than 20 days prior to layoff. Grievances regarding Article 6 may be introduced at Step B and are subject to priority arbitration. Article 6 Untested As of this writing, postal management has never used layoff or reduction of force procedures to separate a letter carrier, so these provisions have not been interpreted in the grievance procedure or in arbitration. City Carrier Assistant Employees Appendix B-3 Other Provisions Section A Article 6 of the 2019 National Agreement indicates the effect of City Carrier Assistant Employment on the layoff of career employees. Appendix B. Appendix B is the reprinting of Section 1 of the 2013 DAS Award, the creation of a new non-career employee category. Provisions of the DAS Award that were modified in the 2019 National Agreement are indicated in bold. Those provisions that are reflected in another part of the National Agreement or Joint Contract Administration Manual are not reprinted herein. 3. Other Provisions A. Article 6. No layoffs or reduction in force. Prior to laying off a career city letter carrier, prior to laying off career city letter carriers in an installation, management will, to the extent possible, offer the impacted employee the opportunity to work any letter carrier assignments being performed by CCA employees, or if necessary, separate 
separate CCA employees. There will be no out-of-schedule pay provided to the impacted employees. Preference-eligible carriers. It should be noted that preference-eligible carriers have special rights under the Veterans Preference Act regarding separation or reduction in grade. Federal law defines a preference-eligible veteran at Title V United States Code Section 2108 CEL 312 Section 483. Preference-eligible employees may have different or greater rights under the law than those set forth in Article 6. A preference-eligible employee may file both a grievance and an MSPB appeal on a separation or reduction in grade. However, Article 6 provides that a, vet- that a preference-eligible employee who exercises appeal rights under the Veterans Preference Act thereby waives access to the grievance procedure beyond Step B, where there is an MSPB appeal pending as of the date the grievance is scheduled for arbitration by the parties. The date of the arbitration scheduling letter is considered the date the arbitration is scheduled by the parties for purposes of Article 6.F.3. See Article 16.9 for further explanation of dual filings. Oh my goodness, that is the end of Article 6. Boy, some of these are a bit of a slog. So, that is all I have for today. Let me close that window. And uh, that's not too bad. 36 minutes. I don't know. Somehow it felt longer. Maybe listen to it at double speed. Although then it would probably be even more unintelligible. Anyway, thanks for sticking with me. And we will have another one of these in a couple of weeks. Uh, article, uh, yeah, article 7 is next.